Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Sergeant Alfredo Cantu Gonzalez. Gonzalez was leading the 3rd Platoon, part of Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines during the Vietnam War. And the time period we're going to talk about here is during the Battle of Hue, and that's during the early days of the Tet Offensive in 1968. So to back up a little bit and talk Vietnam before we get into what's going on here, really at the start of 1968, Vietnam is... Yet again, in so many of these, these conflicts we talk about, it's a civil war at heart. It's a civil war between North Vietnam and South Vietnam that originated really at the end of the Second World War. So Vietnam was occupied by um, Japanese forces during the Second World War. And when Japan surrendered in August, Vietnam is one of those territories that kind of, you know, we'll say reverted back to um, pre-World War II or pre-occupation times. Now, Ho Chi Minh, the eventual leader of North Vietnam, the North Vietnamese government, wasted no time. So Japan surrenders in August of 1945. And in September, less than a month later, he declares a communist-style government will rule Vietnam. It's a little bit of a... It's a little chaotic. As we see around the world, anytime there's you know, maybe a power vacuum is a way to say it. And, and Ho Chi Minh jumps on the opportunity which isn't crazy. Remember coming out of the second world war, we have two major powers, two major ideologies. And it's, it is far from clear in 1945, whether communism or capitalism or, or the democratic West or the socialist states, like which one is going to prevail. And there are reasons for countries like Vietnam to choose one or the other, any number of reasons. And Ho Chi Minh decides that they're going to, to align with and follow kind of this Soviet communist uh, methodology for their new government. There's a lot of folks that aren't very happy about that, namely anybody that's not uh, Soviet Union or China. Um, the French are pretty unhappy. They have a lot of interests in Vietnam. You end up with the French Indo French Indochina War that lasts um, for a while throughout the 50s, and then I believe it's in 1954 the Geneva Convention or a Geneva Conference, excuse me, a Geneva Conference. Um, divides Vietnam and says, you know, to, to put an end to hostilities, we're going to draw a line here and usually done as a demilitarized zone, a DMZ to kind of keep warring parties apart. You know, we saw this in, in Korea as well, right? Still see it in Korea actually. And he said, we're in, in Geneva, the Geneva conference said we're going to have North Vietnam and, and Ho Chi Minh, good news, you can rule that as, as you see fit in a communist style government. And then South Vietnam was going to be supported, backed, helped, um, aligned with Western democracies, the United States, Great Britain, so on and so forth, in more of a democratic capitalist type environment. One of the challenges in the Vietnam War is South Vietnam would never be you know, the model democracy that the United States maybe was hoping for. But that's kind of true throughout the world um, for anybody. You know, any any communist country that stands up in in the in the image of the Soviet Union never quite gets to that point. And it's the same with the United States. When we look around the world and we're trying to, you know, pull countries into our orbit or or maybe 
hey, don't go communist, go capitalist, go go democratic. I mean, just look through South America. It's you have to question. I guess sure they're not communist, but that isn't democracy. That isn't what we would consider, you know, maybe free market capitalism in, in the United States or anything anywhere near it. But there's a little bit of uh, leniency given in a lot of these cases by the United States because, hey, as long as you're not communist, as long as you're looking to us for help instead of the Soviet Union, we'll, uh, we'll look past a lot of, you know, maybe maybe flaws. Nonetheless, that's the status of Vietnam by the mid-1950s. And just like we see in a lot of countries around the world throughout history, both sides are generally going to want some sort of unification. Remember, this is one country, and bam, now you have a line between the two, and you have two countries. So there's families that are divided. There are There used to be maybe a lot of travel, a lot of commerce between the two that have just stopped. So there's a lot of desire on, there's a lot of desire to, to reunify and reunite the two Vietnams. But of course, we come back to the traditional question then of under whose terms. And that's essentially what leads the United States to become more heavily involved in Vietnam by the early to mid 60s. So in there will be American forces to some degree in Vietnam just about since those Geneva Geneva conference. We're going to have small numbers, even if they're just um, you know diplomatic figures at times. That'll ramp up over time. You'll start to see some special operations forces, special forces, specifically army, special forces on the ground, working to help bolster the South Vietnamese military, help them grow, help them develop, advise and assist. It's kind of the coming out party for the army special forces, the Green Berets coming out of, uh, um, I believe it was Kennedy helped stand up the uh, the Green Berets. And this is this is a great place for them to be utilized. And they're doing a, doing a good job, but it's, it's getting to the point in the mid-60s where that might not be enough. And you start to see an escalation, an escalation in terms of U.S. involvement, troops on the ground, in terms of you know maybe the scope of warfare, in, in terms of the responsibilities you're asking for the Americans on the ground. At one point, it was simply advise, assist, help the South Vietnamese grow because we want to make sure they can't be toppled by by the North Vietnamese. And, and you kind of blink and all of a sudden American forces are patrolling harbors and we're, we're running bombing missions over North Vietnam and we have direct action raids. And now all of a sudden there's, you know, search and destroy missions out into the countryside where U S forces are engaged in, you know, it's definitely by 1965 engaged in direct combat with North Vietnamese forces in South Vietnam still, but you start to see an escalation and it's a challenging fight because again, it's a civil war. And it's, it's a very difficult conflict to, to put a scoreboard on. Remember, we're going to fight almost exclusively in South Vietnam. We're really not going to fight at all in North Vietnam. There will be some conflicts in Cambodia and Laos that, for a long, that border the western part of Vietnam. And for a long time, that's going to be a mix of uh, classified and then kind of an open secret. And then uh, controversial, at the very least, you know, violating another nation's sovereignty. But... It's this weird box we've kind of placed the conflict in where North Vietnam will move through those countries to attack, harass, and resupply elements in South Vietnam. But the United States and South Vietnam won't be able to attack them there. It's kind of this weird deal that you see in warfare from time to time. But how do you declare victory in a place like South Vietnam? That's a challenge because we're not, you know, let's look at the Second World War. If we can topple the Nazi government, 
There we go. That's a good place to start. Maybe if we take Berlin, that should do it, right? Or occupy Japan. That would probably end the Second World War in the Pacific. But what do you do when there's an aggressor, an aggressor in a country and you can't quite get rid of them 100%? I mean, you have a mix of, of North Vietnamese conventional forces, military forces, well-trained, well-equipped military forces. So cool, we can try to kill, destroy, remove all of them. Then you have this weird mix. They're called Viet Cong forces. That is, it's a, a guerrilla insurgent group that's pretty well organized in a military fashion that and also pretty well equipped across the country that blends in well with the population. And then you just plain have supporters of North Vietnam. So how do you deal with that group there? Because it's not very easy to just kill everybody. That's a big, big ask. And the bulk of the supply, support, logistics, all of that is in another country. It's in North Vietnam. We're not going into this conflict with the intent of toppling North Vietnam. Otherwise, we would have charged across that border and invaded. We kind of saw how that played out in the Korean War, and it was it kind of brought us right on that brink of a global conflict, World War III. So we're not invading North Vietnam. So we just have to, what, clear out South Vietnam? Anyways, it's a very challenging conflict to try to put a, a you know, you want to have a scoreboard of sorts maybe. Again, think to the Second World War where kids could put up a map in their school and when they come into class in the morning based off the radio report say, hey, here's how far U.S. forces move towards Berlin. And you can watch it happen and you can see we're getting closer. Oh, Battle of the Bulge, we moved back a little bit. You can watch how this is playing out, not in Vietnam, not in any real easy way to track. Now, there have been a lot of suggestions after the fact of different ways to maybe monitor support within certain hamlets and villages and, and other ways we could have gone about this. But hindsight's twenty twenty, and I'm not even sure that some of the methods brought up after the fact could have done the trick. I imagine, for what it's worth, that in 50 years we're going to be having a very similar conversation around the conflict, specifically in Afghanistan. I think it's a little bit different between Iraq and Afghanistan, but I think we're going to look back at Afghanistan in a very similar light and say, what what method? What was success? How were we ever going to define success and, and actually measure that in that conflict? But not going to go down that rabbit hole today. So one of the methods that we started to use was something around body count. And the idea was as simple as if they have 500,000 troops available to them in North Vietnam and we kill X percentage, they are now no longer mission capable. They can't conduct offensive operations. They can barely conduct defensive operations. It makes sense, right? If you're in a bubble and that 500,000 is all you have access to and you kill 300,000, 400, heck, say you kill all 500,000, there you go. The conflict's over. You don't have to worry about it. So the idea, and it makes sense in terms of an easy way to track it, is let's put body count as this number. And there had been intelligence estimates for years to try to gauge the actual strength of the North Vietnamese military. And, and some were relatively accurate. Some weren't, um, but we at least have a number we're working towards. And then we're stacking up, you know, no pun intended here. We're stacking up a body count um, compared to that number. And, and that's how we're measuring success. So by the end, by 1967, we're starting to see if you measure it based off of, you know, a percentage of body count to the, the number of people they have um, available to fight, 1967, we're starting to look like we've, we've made this turn. There just can't be that many 
North Vietnamese and Viet Cong fighters left. We've killed so many of them. Now, that's also assuming that every one of those estimates coming out of a battle is accurate. And, and of course, they never are. They're always skewed. It, it's, it's almost without exception, you know, I'll use the United States and North Vietnam in this example, but it carries through just about every conflict. Coming out of a battle, the United States will say, we killed 100, but we killed 100. And North Vietnam will say, you killed five. And it's usually somewhere in between there, right? And we see the same thing today in Iraq and Afghanistan. The U.S. will say, we killed 35. And they'll say two. Like, ah, it's more than two. But they do the same thing. They'll attack American forces and say, we killed 48. And the U.S. will say, we didn't take any casualties. So this term of body count is very, very challenging to really nail down. But nonetheless, if it's at least generally accurate, we've got to be making progress, right? We're working against a fixed number. It's the idea, relatively fixed. So one of the sentiments in the United States is, hey, this is probably on, we're probably on the back end of this war. We're having success that, you know, realistically, a North Vietnamese army had no chance against the United States military. Size, scope, capability just wasn't going to be able to hang on in a conventional fight. It makes sense. It fits. Of course, we're going to whittle away this force over time. But Vietnam was so much more complicated than that. So after the United States is kind of thinking we might be coming around the corner, we might be able to start seeing this thing come to a close, you see an offensive plan in North Vietnam that's going to come to be known, in the United States at least, as the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive would be an operation in 1968 that took part all over the country. Generally speaking, it kicked off on January 31st of 1968, and the major part of that operation went until the end of March, so a couple months. There would be parts that would last for about half the year, even a little bit into September. But the general premise of the Tet Offensive is if you're sitting in the North Vietnamese planning office, because remember, this was their offensive and the United States was reacting to this, they're getting hit pretty hard. The body count strategy might not end up, we, you know, now we can look back and say that wasn't going to do the trick, but you don't know that in 1967, 68. And if you're North Vietnam, you don't want to continue to take losses like that. You know, I, I, I was mentioning that the counts, the body counts might have been inaccurate, but there is constant American bombings of these supply lines of these North Vietnamese troops. It's taking a toll. You know, maybe it's not the toll that we're hoping it is, but there's still only so much damage the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces can take before they really will. You know, this idea of the body count, it's not a flawed concept. It's just flawed sometimes in how you can actually go about it. It's doing the trick to a degree against the North Vietnamese. So they, they don't want this thing to go on for 30 more years, especially at that intensity. So there's a thought and there's a thought that circles. It's not, it's not, pervasive across North Vietnamese government and military, but there's enough people that feel this way that they end up carrying out the offensive. And the idea is South Vietnam is on the brink. You know, if it's not for the U.S. military and, and a handful of South Vietnamese military units, the population is ready to go. They're not interested in this puppet government that the United States has stood up. They want to be a part of a Vietnamese government. We can offer that. We just got to, you know, it's like the Jenga Tower. It's close. It's so close. Just give it that extra little push. And the, the gamble is that that little extra push is going to be a move across the country, hitting multiple targets. I want to say over 100 cities, towns, and villages almost simultaneously across Vietnam with North Vietnamese and South and, and Viet Cong forces to show a, you know, it's a show of strength. They're going to take radio towers and broadcast that North Vietnamese 
And Viet Cong forces are now in control of certain cities. They're going to, to, to you know, remove government from city centers. They're going to, you're going to look out your, you're going to wake up on February 1st and look out your window and see North Vietnamese soldiers in your city center. So I guess the war's over. I guess they made their move. They're here. And, and the, the, the gamble that North Vietnam is taking here, and it's not crazy, is that the South Vietnamese people will welcome them to a degree enough to be able to expel the United States forces and we can force an end to the war. If nothing else, we can at least force a start to negotiations. Well, one of the cities that's going to be attacked during the Tet Offensive very early on is called the city or is named Hue. H-U-E. Hue is about 40 miles south of the demilitarized zone. And this is where we start to have to think about how, where is this war going in 1968? Because Hue is going to be hit by, I mean, 10 battalions, 10 enemy battalions. You're talking, gosh, at that point, 10,000 more. How the heck are there 10 enemy battalions able to organize and coordinate an attack 40 miles south of the DMZ? That's a problem. That's not representative of what we keep telling ourselves and, and that, you know, how we see the war going that's a sizable enemy force that's attacking into this city named Hue. Now, because of a holiday that was ongoing, there were a lot of forces that were, were gone, that were home. And the city is, I don't necessarily want to say the city of Hue falls when it's attacked on January 31st, but it's there's not much there to defend it, especially against the size force that's attacking. So in short order, the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces occupy Hue. Now there's a city of about 140,000 people, and it does look like a lot of these folks exited the city. Um, there would be pretty, there'd be a fair amount of civilian casualties, but given that 140,000 number, I think a lot left the city when they could, or even during the fighting. But they're going to occupy, North Vietnamese and Viet Cong forces will occupy the city, and the South Vietnamese forces, and I think I've said before that they are just barely holding on, but the reality is they've ceded control of much of this city. Reinforcements are called. To start the battle, the reinforcements that are called upon are going to be 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. They're close enough to get there and enter the fight. Now, other units are going to show up. There will be a lot of Marines involved in the battle of Huey. Um, this is going to end up going on for... Um, quite a while. It's going to go for almost two months, about two months worth of fighting, um, which is longer than a lot of other battles in the Tet Offensive. Marines are going to be some of the first ones there, but by the end of the conflict, you're going to have Marines. Um, of course, lots of Air Force activity and, and plenty of Army units here as well. All in, I want to say there's four different Army battalions and three different uh, Marine battalions that will participate in this two-month fight, the Battle of Way. One of the first units to enter the city is going to be Alpha Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and the 3rd Platoon of Alpha Company is led by Sergeant Alfredo Cantu Gonzalez. Sergeant Gonzalez has already served in Vietnam. I want to say it was in 1967, maybe earlier. He came back um, after that deployment and, and helped train troops to get ready to go to Vietnam. Got some bad news about some of the guys he sent over there were, were killed um, and raised his hand and said, I'm going back. Got to go back. Got to do what I can. Um, quickly ended up back in country, 21 years old, finds himself in charge of a platoon. 
That platoon is entering on January 31st, 1968, really their first urban combat. And this is, this is worth noting because a lot of the combat to this point in the war for a lot of these units was jungle, rural, um, maybe villages. It's a different fight. That doesn't mean that these Marines and soldiers like, like Sergeant Gonzalez aren't trained to fight in an urban environment, but it's just a lot different. I mean, think if you're walking through the woods or, or even the jungle, somebody can hole up behind a tree or maybe lay on the ground and hide themselves. But that's a diff- how you deal with that is different than somebody that's holed up in a building, a concrete building with two-foot walls and, and doorways that you have to go through. You can't, you can't cross a stream wherever you want. You have to cross at the bridge. You can't enter that house however you want. You have to go through the door. That's different than open terrain in a jungle or, or, or agricultural land or whatever it might be. So it's an entirely different problem set that Gonzalez and his men are facing for the first time. And they're not going to be able to just kind of slowly creep into it. As soon as they hit the outskirts of Hue, they come under intense enemy fire. So they're moving on vehicles. And as soon as they they encounter this first enemy contact, they have to jump down from the vehicles, take up defensive positions, and figure out how they're going to continue their advance. It's worth noting that they didn't really know what they were getting into. Many of the forces in Hue at this point were dispersed, friendly forces, were South Vietnamese, they were dispersed, and the intelligence coming out about that battle and enemy locations and friendly locations was was bad. It just it was chaos. So it's not as though Gonzalez and his men knew what they were necessarily getting into. They knew they were driving to contact. They knew there was a fight, um, but they didn't know where the enemy positions were, where the front lines were. They didn't know exactly where the friendly positions were held up. They were just getting into it. So... Column comes under contact. Gonzalez exits the vehicles with his men, and without hesitation, right away, as you see over and over in in combat, is you can't sit there and hope that something happens. Somebody has to step up, take charge, and assault. And if they were to just get out of the trucks and sit by the sides and and protect the flanks, you don't know the superiority that the enemy has at this point. If they have mortars, if they have artillery, if they have any number of things, you have to take the fight to the enemy, even when they're dug in, especially at this point, because they have to continue their advance into the city center. They have to liberate this city. So Gonzalez leads attack after attack into these enemy positions, clears snipers out of the nearby buildings, which is a incredibly, incredibly dangerous mission, right? The, the reason urban combat is so nasty is that if somebody puts themselves in a room and they shut the door and they close all the windows, except the one they're shooting out of, how do you get them out of there? You, you know, we, it's not always the easiest thing to put a tank round into the, the building. You might not be able to get a tank into position. Maybe you can't drop certain types of ordnance like they were running into during the Battle of Hue. Certain things weren't allowed because this was a population center. You couldn't always fire artillery. You have to go in there and get them. But on the other side of that door is a man that's trying to kill you, trying to kill your buddies. So how do you go into that room? What if there's other people defending that door? It's just, it's a nasty, close range, brutal fight. Gonzalez leads attack after attack after attack to clear out these hold-up enemy fighters, killing one after the other after the other, allowing his unit to continue their advance. Eventually, one of his guys is wounded, falls into the middle of the street, falls off a tank he was riding on, exposed enemy fire, laying out there by himself. So without hesitation, Gonzalez, after leading all of these other attacks, runs through enemy fire, 
to recover this wounded Marine and pull him back to friendly positions for treatment. In the process, Gonzalez is wounded by, at least by shrapnel fire, may have been shot at this time as well, bleeding profusely. So pretty seriously wounded. We're still looking at January 31st, 1968, day one of the battle. That day, he just continues. He won't stop. So on the spot, refuses medical treatment. He, you know, he, he's patching it up. I, anytime we say somebody's refusing medical treatment, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not suggesting that they're being careless. You know, you'll often see somebody, you know, affix a tourniquet and it's, it's not, or, or, or bandage a wound or something. It's not as though they're saying, let this wound go. It's, I want the medic to spend their time on saving someone else's life. I'll be fine. Let me just work on this. That's what's going on here with Gonzalez. So he, he treats his own wounds as best he can, doesn't want to be evacuated, refuses to be evacuated, and continues the fight. Before the day is over, they come up against another heavily fortified, dug-in enemy machine gun position that, again, stops his entire company in their tracks. Now wounded, bleeding all over the place, Gonzalez maneuvers his unit around this position, and then the only way to attack it is for him to to step out into the open, into the field of fire of this machine gun, which he does, firing at the machine gun and then throwing grenades into the position, destroying it and the enemy fighters that had been manning it. That's generally going to wrap up day one of combat for, for Sergeant Gonzalez and Alpha 1-1 Marines during the Battle of Way. Now, Gonzalez, at any point here, could have been evacuated for wounds. 100%. There were people with wounds of his magnitude and even less that had been evacuated throughout the battle. Nobody would have batted an eye. Instead, he refuses to stay with his men so he can continue to lead them through some of the deadliest fighting they will see throughout the time of Vietnam. He'll fight for four more days before on February 4th. And for what it's worth, those four more days is just one act after another of clearing out enemy machine gun positions and and, and leading charges and, and constantly being in the front with his men and, and taking on every bit of risk that he's asking his guys to take on. Four days later on February 4th, 1968, Sergeant Alfredo Cantu Gonzalez is hit and killed by enemy fire at the age of 21. For his actions during that stretch of time from January 31st to February 4th, 1968, in leading his men to move into the center of the city of Huey to help alleviate the pressure on that city as they begin to take it back from North Vietnamese forces, clearing multiple enemy positions, always leading from the front, putting himself at risk to save the lives of his men. Sergeant Gonzalez would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.